It's Wednesday, August 4th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Here's the thing about August, people. It's, it's August. People take vacations. People are moving apartments. There are a lot of scheduling conflicts. And that's just context for saying I'm joined today once again by Jason Moser. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for being there. Well, I mean, you got to make an excuse, right? If you can't just like hit him uh, out of the blue with something, they'd be like, wait a minute, didn't I just hear from that guy on Monday? You, you're bringing him again? Listen, folks, I'm sorry. You know, you get much paid for here, but but yeah, happy to be here as always, Chris. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And you know what? I have a conflict next week, so next next uh, week's going to be the proverbial short week amen. on the show. Uh, we've got more earnings. We've got more of the war on cash, but we're going to start in the arena of health. Second quarter profits for CVS Health were higher than expected. They raised their guidance for the full fiscal year. Normally, that is the one-two punch we like to see, but shares of CVS down a little bit because they are planning to increase wages for employees and they are planning to invest in more digital options for customers. And both of those are good things. And I think things you would want to see if you're a shareholder, uh, but it probably also accounts for why the stock is down a little bit. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I think I think you're right. Um, on on the whole, I mean, this was a very a good quarter, a respectable quarter. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think there's some some probably some near term headwinds that maybe have investors less than enthused today. I mean, this hasn't been the greatest investment over the past several years. I mean, it, it, it's. Over the past year, it's it's done okay, but you stretch that out three and five years, it's it's just not really been the greatest investment in the world. And and I was t- we were talking about this last quarter. I feel like we're gonna see some goodwill and some brand equity come from all of this stuff with the pandemic. I mean, CBS has has been seen as a part of the of the solution. They've done a very good job, I think, uh, serving their role as one of the national partners uh, for the Federal Pharmacy uh, Partnership Program. I mean, that is something uh, geared towards uh, rolling these vaccines out, and, and certainly CVS has, has uh, done their fair share then. But yeah, you said it. I mean, they are going to, they're going to raise the minimum wage uh, to $15 an hour by July 2022. Uh, that is, I think we can all agree, the right thing to do. It is going to impact cost structure in the near term. It's going to create an incremental $600 million in labor costs over the next three years, management noted on the call. Um, so, that that is that is something that, that you know, we're going to have to cope with um, on the investing side. But again, you, you can feel good about, about the fact that, that they've done that. Um, and then, yeah, the investments in digital only make sense. And, and they put some data out on the call that I think really, really makes sense of it all. And, and, and you certainly understand more and more why they continue to invest in digital, because digital retail customers spend two and a half times more than non-digital customers in their store. And they manage one and a half times more prescriptions than non-digital. And they remain customers for longer than non-digital pharmacy patients. So, th- digital, while it's while it's very convenient, it's also a tremendous retention tool. I mean, once you kind of get in that that digital ecosystem, so to speak, uh, regardless of the concept, whether it's CVS or Amazon or whatever, I mean, it just it, the convenience starts to take over, becomes much easier to get things done, and people kind of stick with you. So, yeah, near term, maybe there is a little bit uh, a little bit of concern there on on how these investments are going to impact the bottom line. But but looking further out, I, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do, and I think the company and, and ultimately investors should benefit from it. I'm glad you mentioned what the stock has done the last few years. Because you go back to the end of 2017, 
and CVS Health uh, announces the acquisition of Aetna. And I'm wondering, with the benefit of hindsight, if you look at that now and think to yourself, that was a mistake, or do you look at it and say, that's going to take longer to pay off for shareholders than we probably all thought at the time? Um, I, I think, I don't think it was a mistake. I, I go, I go into something like that. That's such a big acquisition and, and it's such, I mean, Aetna being a really, you know, an, an insurer, a healthcare company. I mean, this is, it's a bit of a different business than CVS, uh, was primarily. I mean, they, they play in the same sandbox, but that just, it's all to say that an, an acquisition like that is going to take a while, I think, to integrate and really, um, cut the fat, so to speak, and, and, and make sense of it all. Um, it, it does, to me, though, it, 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 it diversifies CVS even a little bit more. I think it gives them the opportunity to really scale out these digital investments. I mean, they are seeing a tremendous response to their to their digital and, and virtual offerings in the Minute Clinic. Um, and, and I think that you know, when you look at, I mean, the business itself, I mean, the revenue, revenue grew 11.1% versus a year ago, and they saw strength really in all three major segments in pharmacy services, the retail business, and in the healthcare benefits segment as well. Um, retail business grew 14.2%, believe it or not. Um, but, but to me, again, I mean, I think when, when you look at the, the investments they're making, that at an acquisition only only makes sense, but it is it is one that would take I think some time to work through the system, and and, and that that could be something that that keeps people on the sidelines as well. But I mean, it's it's worth noting too. I mean, they did raise guidance, as you said. Um, and generally speaking, I think that we'll we'll come through this this pandemic, and I think CVS will be in a in a a stronger position than they were before, which ultimately should should serve them well. Concerts are coming back, and that is good news for Live Nation Entertainment. CEO Michael Rapino says that 2022 and 2023 will be a roaring era for concerts and live events. Before we discuss whether or not we think he's right about that, uh, in terms of Live Nation's second quarter results, anything in particular stand out to you? Well, this this is one of those companies that so many uh, of us love and hate at the same time, right? I mean, it is it gives you access to all of your favorite live events, but dang it, those fees, you know? I mean, it just they they really hold they really uh, they really hold the power there, so to speak. Um, I think it was really noteworthy for the quarter. Revenue for this quarter was five hundred and seventy six million. The thing that stood out to me was that that five hundred and seventy six million that compared to seventy four million. From a year ago, right? So $576 million this quarter versus $74 million a year ago. And on the one hand, you're like, okay, I get it. I mean, that's that's $74 million, second quarter of 2020. We know what was going on then. So you love to see you love to see that that delta there. But but by the same token, I kind of thought, man, doesn't $74 million last year? That sounds kind of high. Given given what everything everything that was going on, $74 million. Right. Seemed kind of kind of high. I was like, "Wow, they did probably a little bit better than I would have assumed uh, before actually digging into it." But it has been a tremendous bounce back for Live Nation for for obvious reasons. It's great to see all three business segments more than doubled their revenues from last year. Not a surprise. Um, so to me, I think what stood out is just the across the board robust numbers that they recorded in in all segments, uh, tickets 
traffic, just the general attitude. I mean, it does it does feel like this is a business that's really getting ready to get started. I don't blame Rapino for focusing the Wall Street's attention on next year and the year after that. Um, but to be fair to him, it it really does seem like everything everything we suspected about pent up demand for travel, for live events, concerts, sports, whatever, that really did seem to be coming true uh, before the Delta variant uh, raised its ugly head. So uh, when you look at shares of Live Nation Entertainment, do you think it looks like, I don't want to say a value opportunity, but do you think it, for investors who are thinking in years and not quarters, that yeah, this is um, a, a decent investment on a reopening strategy over the next 24 months. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, again, I mean, it's one of those businesses where you know, on the one hand, you can look at it and really, I mean, I mean, customers do have some some fair fair amount of vitriol there, right? I mean, just just based on the fees. I mean, I, I get that certainly. I mean, this is more than just a fees business. I mean, there are there are uh, advertising and sponsorship sides to, to the business as well, but primarily, um, it, you know, it, it is fees. But they hold such a market leading position with Ticketmaster uh, and, and their expertise in operating all of these these live events. So, so to me, I mean, you you look at something. I mean, yeah, I love the fact that they're talking about 2023 and 24. I mean, it, you just look at these next several several quarters, though. I mean, June was Ticketmaster in North America's. It was the fourth best month in history for transacted ticket volume, uh, driven by clearly uh, reopening. Uh, of, of the economy and people getting back out there, I think I saw they're doing a really good job in, in regard to making sure these are these are safe events. I mean, I, I you're seeing a big focus on making sure that folks who are going to these shows are either vaccinated or have have been tested. And I think they quoted a number for the recent Lollapalooza festival in Chicago. I think they said on the call that 90% of attendance had actually uh, shown proof of vaccination. So I mean, 90 percent. That, that's a lot when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of attendants. So I think they're creating an environment where people are going to feel pretty good about going back. Delta variant and, and whatever subsequent variants arise, notwithstanding, uh, because honestly, we have the tools to be able to deal with those those variants that we didn't have a year ago. So uh, I mean, yeah, the, the pipeline for 2022 up double digits from 2019. Obviously, uh, no surprise there. Ticketmaster added over 11 million net new fee-bearing tickets year-to-date, and that has already surpassed any previous full-year growth. And so, I think those are just the signs of what's to come. And so, yeah, when you look 2022, 23, 24, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic for a business like this. And when when you see a market leader like this, a, a company that holds such a strong position in its market, it's really difficult to bet against. I mean, the biggest risk for a business like this, other than a pandemic, for example, I mean, the risk that we all focused on more was and still is, I think, probably just being under the microscope for the fees that they charge, right? Anti-competitive behavior um, is going to be something they're probably always going to have to, to answer to. But I don't know that that really at the end of the day, I don't know that that puts them in a bad position because they do what they do so well uh, and, and they hold such a market-leading position already. 
We talked on Monday about Square's acquisition of Afterpay, uh, the Australian payments company. Um, sticking with the buy now, pay later model, uh, are firm holdings shares up a little bit today um, on the news that a firm is going to partner with Apple to offer buy now, pay later services for purchases of Apple devices in Canada. Um, I know that a firm was up earlier in the week off of the Afterpay news. So um, maybe in the absence of that, shares would have been up uh, even more today. Uh, but you take them together, and the stock's up about 20% in the past week. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems like, um, I don't want to overblow the, uh, the partnership with Apple, but it seems like uh, nothing but upside. I, I would think... I would think, yeah, there, there certainly it doesn't feel like there should be, be any downside to something like that. It's funny because you you read that headline, and, and immediately the first thing that sticks out is a firm and Apple partnering, and you're thinking, oh my god, now it's happening, right? I mean, this is, oh wait a minute, it's just for Apple device purchases. Oh, and it's only in Canada. Oh, okay, so maybe this isn't as big of a headline as some would want it to be, given what we saw with Square uh, and Afterpay earlier this week. Um, and I, I do think this puts a firm in a bit of a, a I don't want to say a bind, but I think that the burden of proof for them is is going up. Um, I think that one of the reasons why Square is paying so much for afterpay, like like we were talking about on the show on Monday, I think time was a factor there. I think that Square felt like they really needed to get this and get it now. Uh, when time is 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 an issue, you're you're going to offer a little bit more than you, than you typically might. And so that that's twenty nine billion dollar deal. I mean, you look at a firm today, uh, market cap of around seventeen and a half billion dollars. Um, very similar financials, very similar sized businesses. So you can see. Uh, you know, just the difference there between what Square paid for Afterpay and where where a firm is today. I mean, Apple is looking to make its own uh, waves in the space as well, too, right? I mean, they're going to be building out a a buy now pay later feature for their Apple Pay uh, service. It's going to be something they call Apple Pay Later, um, where ultimately you have a zero interest plan that would consist of four payments, or you could actually have a plan that runs over a longer stretch of time, and perhaps that incorporates some interest in there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's it's hard to say exactly why Apple felt compelled to go with a firm in this case. Maybe they're kind of maybe they're kind of kicking the tires. I don't know. Um, but but it certainly does feel like a firm now. The burden of proof is is even greater for them to really make the case for why this business is something more than just a buy now pay later uh, business. Because as we've as we've said, and that that more or less is a feature that can be replicated. Um, but maybe there's another maybe there's another uh, uh, bigger player out there in the uh, in the fintech space that would like to incorporate. That feature as well, and and you know Apple certainly could be one of those one of those companies maybe giving a firm a, a little bit of a closer look. Last time I checked, Apple has somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred billion dollars in cash on the balance sheet. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it it probably goes on the list of reasons to do this partnership just so they can find out a little bit more. Because if Apple decides they want to get into this, who better than them to make an offer that a firm can't refuse? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is that is a good point. And I mean that if if you add my my first inclination, my first 
instinct is to say that Apple would not be interested in buying a firm. Now, I could be totally wrong, right? I mean, we, we've talked before. It's sometimes it's easier to buy it, sometimes it's easier to build it. And Apple is in a position where they aren't necessarily really so pressed for time, right? I mean, they have a far more established business with a far more established base of device users uh, than most any company in the entire world. They do have the luxury of time. Um, and, and so, partnerships with Goldman Sachs, MasterCard, all helping make Apple Pay work. Um, you start to ask the question: Does Apple really need a firm? No, probably not. But but it'll it'll be interesting to see what potential fruit this this relationship bears. Because it it's hey, listen, it's a win for a firm, like you said. It just I, I, it's hard to see any downside from this happening. Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.